Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum... We talk with counterterrorism expert Malcolm Nance about his new book, They Want to Kill Americans. And by they, Nance means armed right-wing extremists in America who are uniting and plotting to install a domestic dictatorship. We'll talk to Nance about how serious a threat these groups pose, and we'll hear his assessment of the war in Ukraine. Nance is a member of Ukraine's Foreign Fighters Legion and just returned from the country. Forum is next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In his new book called They Want to Kill Americans, counterterrorism expert Malcolm Nance traces the recent rise of right-wing U.S. extremist groups who are armed and, as he says, planning for war. Meantime, Nance has just returned from the war in Ukraine, where Russian missile strikes across Ukraine intensified this weekend as Russia appeared to lift its so-called operational pause. Attacks in the eastern part of Donetsk in the Donbass region were particularly heavy. Nance is with the International Legion of Territorial Defense of Ukraine. He's also a former U.S. naval intelligence officer specializing in cryptology and counterterrorism. Welcome to Forum, Malcolm Nance. Well, I'm always glad to be here at KQED. Well, we're always glad to have you. How much can you tell us about your role with the Foreign Fighters Legion in Ukraine? Well, first, it's important for people to know that there's a difference between some people who have gone there as foreign fighters and the International Legion. The Legion is the only authorized foreign combat force uh, of Westerners in Ukraine. I mean, there are other groups like the Georgian Legion and and, uh, the Belarusians, but the International Legion is a part of the Ukrainian army, they are uh, multiple battalions which are formed from people from 52 different nations. Actually, I think we're up to 56. Uh, and all of us are combatants. We are all riflemen in an infantry battalion, and we have various roles that we carry out. But we have a very large section of the front line that's under our control. And directly in front of us are the Russians. So help us understand the situation on the ground. What do we need to know? 
Well, there were two entirely different wars that have been fought in Ukraine. First was the one of maneuver warfare, where Russia actually invaded the country, came in, you know, uh, took over large swaths, not so much of terrain as the roads that they were on. And it was a Ukrainian strategy to deliberately allow them to push very far into the country to maintain uh, their lines of communication and resupply on these major highways. And then they just devastated them. They just came into their rear, destroyed all of their food, their fuel, their ammunition and supplies to the point where tanks would just run out of fuel. And that's where you would see the farm tractors collect them. Uh, The places where they did push through, like their attempt to seize uh, the northeastern suburbs of Kiev, out in Hostomel, Irpin, Budyanka, um, those places were, were, were places of intense fighting. And the Ukrainian army simply just defeated them. They destroyed three combined armed armies and retook the entirety of the north of the nation. Now out in the east, Russia has limited its goals to seizing the you know, the dotted lines that make up the uh, provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk, which yeah. they had only controlled about half of in the pre-war. And then they've taken the new province, Kherson, down in the south. Their goal was always to cross over to Odessa and make an arc from Transnistria, uh, which is part of Moldova, take Odessa and then connect over through Mikolaev and then Kherson. The Russians were utterly defeated in that goal. And right now, They are hanging on. They've changed their tactics into these meat grinder tactics where what they do is they use artillery to just destroy every building in front of them, no matter what its value, and then move forward incrementally so that we, you know, as Ukrainians can't use our rocket and javelin missile advantage. Well, that is kind of what we're hearing in the more recent descriptions of what's happening is that very little ground is being won or lost by either side. And more and more analysts say this really is devolving into a war of attrition. Is it possible to characterize who has the upper hand right now? Sure. And these are the same analysts who were poo-pooing me in the pre-war when I said that, you know, there's actually a Ukrainian army that was going to defend their country. And I I was with them down in Donetsk in the pre-war. And, uh, you know, same people that said Ukraine would, you know, Kiev would collapse in 72 hours. And I know, you know, as an analyst for MSNBC, I said very clearly, they're never going to take the city of Kiev. They just don't have it. These people will, you know, fight them hammer and tong. Even to this day, there are little ladies who are heartbroken that they haven't been able to throw their hundreds of bottles of Molotov cocktails out of apartment windows. Um, But that being said, the war of attrition, is the Russian strategy that they've chosen. And the Ukrainians have allowed them to carry out part of that strategy in the Severodonetsk Lichansk pocket. But, you know, as President Zelensky said, for two small towns, they lost thousands and thousands of casualties, hundreds of armored vehicles. And by, you know, by, by um, in comparison, the Ukrainian army has lost very little. What we're doing is we're wearing the Russians down. This is a classic rope-a-dope strategy. They really are losing all of their combat power, their ability to punch. So for those of you who are historians, just think of this as the German operations in the Ardennes in 1944, the Battle of the Bulge, where they did this massive armored punch. And then by Christmas, they had lost all their combat power, and you know the German army was then devastated. I suspect... 
the Ukrainian army, and I'm not saying this on the basis of any information that I have, but you know, I, I've been predicting what's going on in this war rather accurately since the beginning. And I suspect now, uh, comes fall, there will be a major Ukrainian counteroffensive because they've been reserving all their combat power and Russia will not have much to resist with. Hmm. So then what is the end game? I guess for Russia and also for Ukraine, it sounds like you're saying that they are, the Ukrainians are in a better position than maybe media reports suggest. Well, you know, I know, you know, six weeks ago, we were taking and sustaining heavy casualties in the central part of the Eastern Front in that Donetsk-Severodonetsk pocket uh, because Russia was using this, this strategy of destroy villages, you know, creep into terrain. Now the Ukrainians are using a strategy of make you pay for every inch. And the Russians actually can, you know, the Ukrainians have less men, less equipment, and are doing much better. But the news media tends to to only go after story of the day. And when that story came out that they were losing 100 men per day, it was at the height of the intensity of conflict. Now, the initiative will fall back on the Ukrainian side when we I mean, we're now using the high-mobility multiple rocket launch system, which, if those of you who saw me on MSNBC on 18 April recall, I was one of the first people to demand that Ukraine get this system. This is a high, high-precision missile system that outguns anything Russia has. And just in the last two weeks since the first four launchers were in operation, virtually all of Russia's major ammunition dumps we're suddenly blowing up two, three, four per day. And these these systems have the ability to punch out, you know, nearly, uh, you know, 100 kilometers. And that's not even with the best missiles. With the best missiles, they could strike Russian uh, facilities 500 kilometers away. That's 350 miles. Uh, that will change the balance of the war. The, the, the weapons they've already been given have changed it. We have to sustain it. We have to increase it. And this war could end this year. Hmm. We're talking with counterterrorism expert Malcolm Nance about the war in Ukraine. And if you have questions for Nance about the war and what he's observed, you can always email them to forum at kqed.org or post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. The number to call is 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. There have been... There have been concerns about Russia resorting to a nuclear attack, especially if they grow more frustrated, more desperate. Do you have any indication of that? That is just a horrific thought that Russia would be so desperate. And we've given it, you know, we've strategized on that. What would happen if Vladimir Putin realized that he just lost his army in Ukraine? 80% of the Russian army is in Ukraine. I mean, of the entirety of all Russian forces in that country from as far away as the Pacific Ocean and, you know, as far east as, you know, Murmansk and, you know, know, Belarus, 80% of their army is in Ukraine and it's being devastated. Their forces have no morale. They don't want to be there. And they find when they move forward, there are people that want to kill them out there. So what happens if, if we, the Ukrainians, do a counterattack that is successful? And you have to understand, the Ukrainian commanders are NATO-trained. I know personally, I've met General Pavlyuk, who is now commander of land warfare, who used to be in charge of Donetsk and Luhansk, and General Sersky, who used to be in charge of land warfare, and now he's in charge of Donetsk and Luhansk. 
And these are two very, very wise NATO-trained commanders who know what they're doing. Not only that, they have advice from, you know, the entirety of NATO nations, the European Union and uh, the United States intelligence apparatus telling them, hey, you know, if you hit this ammo dump, you'll you'll cut 20 percent of Russia's combat power and list a chance. Or if you hit this command post, um, you know, the Ukrainians don't have to be told twice. They wipe things out as soon as they get the intelligence and they develop a lot of their own intelligence with the people who are trapped behind the lines. Russia doesn't seem to understand that they're not going to be able to hold this terrain. Ukraine could, in fact, hit them so hard with a combined combat power when Russia reaches reaches its weakest point that they lose everything they've taken since 2014, with possibly the exception of Crimea. Well, let me go to caller Charlie in San Francisco. Hi, Charlie. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. I'm uh, clinically trained in psych. Uh, and I heard a report this morning that uh, from British intelligence or from at least London, and I believe it comes from the government, that uh, was on KQED News. They uh, indicate that Putin is now turning to what amounts to a private army comprised of uh, individuals who are rather unsavory, I guess, uh, some of them coming out of prisons, potentially sociopathic. And I'm wondering if your assessment would now change if you mm-hmm. see Putin turn to a privatized army. Malcolm Nance, we have less than a... Sorry, Charlie. Uh, Malcolm Nance, we have less than a minute going into the break. Any advantage to what they're doing with this privatized army? They're just the dregs of society now being thrown into the front line. And a quick point about nuclear weapons. They detonate a nuclear weapon in Ukraine and the United States and all of NATO will be forced to intervene. We're talking with Malcolm Nance, who has just returned from Ukraine as part of their their Foreign Fighters Legion. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation talking about that Eastern defense of democracy. We'll also be talking about the Western one and how that's holding up right after the break. Stay with us. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. 
What will happen to doctors who defy abortion bans? That's what University of San Diego law professor and bioethicist Dove Fox wonders in the post-Roe landscape. If you're a doctor or a pharmacist, what worries you about defying an abortion ban? Have you contemplated such a thing? You can email forum at kqed.org or leave a voicemail, 415-553-3300. Today, we're talking with Malcolm Nance, a former U.S. Naval Intelligence officer specializing in cryptology and counterterrorism. His new book is They Want to Kill Americans, the Militias, Terrorists, and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency. Nance is also a member of the International Legion of Territorial Defense of Ukraine and just recently returned from the country. If you want to join the conversation, you can call 866-733-6786. You can email your comments, questions to forum at kqed.org or post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Malcolm Nance, you have called Ukraine the, quote, Eastern theater in the defense of democracy and, uh, I know you've written quite a bit about how things are also going in the West in the defense of democracy, particularly against domestic actors. How is the Western theater, if you want to call it that, doing in your view? Things look grim from where where I'm sitting when I'm over in Ukraine. I've been in Ukraine almost nonstop. I think I was home 10 days um, in February, March. And when I look back, and I see the degradation of democracy. I see the Supreme Court apparently has decided that there's none of this, you know, uh, you know, equal justice under the law. They will be a political player in the dreams of the Republican and conservative movement and uh, just overturning things that you would never think about, not just Roe versus Wade, but we understand there's a, a case for the, the supremacy clause in the Constitution, you know, giving states rights viability over the United States government. Um, You see that there's been a sustained multi-year campaign to break up American democracy. And we almost lost that on January 6th. And quite famously, I I predicted that on Real Time with Bill Maher on November 6th, 2020, where, you know, Bill, to his credit, was out saying, hey, we got to do kumbaya. We have to reach out, see what these people really need, bring the nation together. And I... As I usually do, I came with the doom and gloom, and I said, I have some bad news for you. They are going to insurgency. Like, you know, he made a joke about Saddam Hussein and his sons, and I said, yes, we are going into a sustained political, quite possible paramilitary and military campaign Hmm. against American democracy. 62 days later, we had the insurrection. Uh, Within two weeks, the entire Republican Party had flipped to almost supporting openly the insurrection and rejecting their own words that were said within 24 to 72 hours about Donald Trump and about the people who attacked the Capitol. Now they all support the Capitol attack. They do not support the Capitol Hill police. They don't support any of the actions taken. And they now want in the next election, they're saying if they take the House of Representatives, um, and it's only Democrats that are going to give them the House of Representatives with their apathy, then they will go after each individual that took part in the investigation of the Capitol attack. This is insane. This is teetering on the edge of fascism. This make, must make people like you know Tim Schneider, you know, who who wrote books about what yes. happens when you descend into fascism. You know, guys like him and me pull our hair out. 
But, you know, this is the Western wall of democracy. And it's been degraded for some time. I mean, with, uh, you know, Donald Trump, the Russians, uh, you know, tearing things apart, the rise of the alt-right, which is now all of these forces I collectively call Titus, T-I-T-U-S, the Trump insurgency in the United States. And it's not going anywhere. What is... Besides, you've mentioned attempting to reestablish the Trump dynasty. Mm. What are Titus's specific goals? Uh, it's not about reestablishing the Trump dynasty. That's just a small component of it, very a fraction of it. This is about uh, codifying uh, and nationalizing the white supremacist ideology in the United States and then using whatever small minority manages to motivate their forces the most, particularly this coming November. Because they've said it out loud and clear. If they win the House of Representatives and or the Senate this November, they will be on jihad. That's the only word I can think of here against everyone that crossed Donald Trump. And it's a key component of my of, of the strategy I wrote in my book, which, by the way, I finished a year, a year ago. Nothing has changed. In fact, some of the things I wrote have intensified at a rate further, than, you know, quick, much more quickly than I had predicted. You know, I had predicted the QAnon, <clears throat> excuse me, QAnon that would take over as the main be- belief base of the Republican Party within a year to two years. That took six months. So, you know, as we go forward into these elections, um, they have the, the fervent religious cult-like belief that they can topple American government. They can call it an election. But how do dictators and uh, fascists get rid of elections? They have an election and then they get rid of it. So we are always one election away from the end with with uh, the people who support Donald Trump and this ideology of turning America into a dictatorial state. You say that this plan has four distinct phases. Can you describe these? Well, yes. Um, you'll forgive me if they're not exactly in order. The first was the deny phase. The deny phase took place within days of the Capitol insurrection, and that was to deny, one, that it even happened and that it was what you saw, which, you know, I, I, I famously had a, a conversation. I won't say it was a debate with Ben Shapiro on Real Time with Bill Maher last August, and this was supposed to be the, the Republicans, you know, intellectual on there, and this man literally sat there and denied what a Park Service statistic that there were 40,000 people at the protest, maybe as many as 10,000 laid siege to the Capitol, and 2,000, according to the FBI, entered the building and just sat there and said, none of that happened. How can you stand here and lie? And it's like, you don't even reflect reality anymore. That's their strategy, is to completely change the way that the world sees truth. And that's, you know, I mean, that's Orwellian. It's literally 1984, up is down, black is white. But to sit here in front of me, an intelligence professional, someone who deals in empiricism, pure empiricism, you know, I have no tolerance for that. And that's what your listening audience should have. You should have no tolerance for the people who are trying to reinvent 
what truth is. Uh, so the deny strategy was very important to Donald Trump, and it changes its flavor. Over the last year, it's gone from deny that this was impeachable to deny that Trump was actually responsible because he wasn't president, uh, to deny that it was actually an insurrection, to deny that any of it was cr- were crimes, to deny that anyone bought weapons, to deny that this was just a peaceful, you know, to, that this was an armed protest. They change and shift chameleon-like every time. But, you know, it's a chameleon that's, you know, made up of bright red, and the the chameleon never changes color. They demand that the environment behind it change color. So it's really a a, a weird world Mm. where you're sitting there and listening to these denials. Next comes their, uh, uh, which I call part of their political insurgency, uh, which is to attack. Attack your political enemies to throw them off completely. You know, every terrorist group and every insurgent group in the world generally has a political party that is speaking for them. And I think we're closer to the Irish sectarian movement where you had Sinn Féin was the political component of Irish republicanism. And, uh, you know, and then you had the provisional Irish Republican Army, which was carrying out the terrorist insurgency against the British and the and uh, the people in North uh, Northern Ireland. And, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll have people that will call into this program and swear that never happened. But, you know, as the political side is fighting in the halls of power, they really have no intention of working in goodwill. Everything as part of a political insurgency is to support, sustain, and quite possibly destabilize the government so that armed or terroristic insurgency, those components can have an effect to push the uh, seated government into positions it never would negotiate into before. And I, I believe we're coming to that point. Well, who are the groups? I mean, you're talking broadly about insurgents, but also specifically the terrorist groups, the domestic terrorist groups that you want us to understand. We we hear the names. There are several. But just help us understand, you know, sure who they are, what their goals are, and how they united. Well, you know, and I'm glad you said that last part, because I'm going to read out their names and their characteristics, but they are now a fraction of what I call the Titus, the Trump insurgency in the United huh. States. And by the way, the intelligence community, this is how we lump groups together, right? We give them a cool code name, right? <laughs> so, you know, just so that we, uh, we understand who we're dealing with. So you have groups like the Proud Boys, which started out as a street gang who were these, you know, young thugs, right-wing, hardcore extremist neo-Nazis. Uh, ne- essentially not, let me rephrase that, back off the neo-Nazi. They're just straight white supremacists. They don't, you know, see Heil and wear swastikas. But as these, you know, conservative white supremacists who started because they wanted to literally physically punch liberals in the face. And some of their first actions in Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, and New York City, that's precisely what they do. They would just come to these rallies and then wail into them, punching and, and beating people. They were at Charlottesville. They were at other places where we've seen these mass protests. And they then transitioned in the summer of 2020 with virtually every other group to armed rebellion, right? To be these guys who were now in body armor and were carrying long rifles, you know, even though at the January 6th rally they weren't carrying weapons, they were the top command element 
in this chain of forces that had been meeting all throughout November and December 2020 to lay siege to the Capitol. And they viewed themselves as the, you know, the, 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 the commando, which was going to, you know, stay up there and direct forces from, you know, point A to point B. Then you have groups like the Oath Keepers, which is much bigger, much broader, started out as a group which ironically said that they were there to protect the American people by getting service members and policemen to swear an oath not to take part in any armed activities against the American people. So essentially not to participate in martial law or suppressive riots or things like that. Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keeper, would then be found out in the conspiracy for January 6th to have been urging President Trump to declare martial law and use the army against the American people, the very thing that he said he founded the Oath Keepers on. But that he founded the Oath Keepers under Barack Obama. So you need it, right? When the black guy's there, then you need, uh, you need to have the army swearing it. And then by the time Donald Trump came around, he became such a loyalist that the Oath Keepers were almost an unofficial militia made up of former military and law enforcement people supporting Trump. Then you have 3% Militia, which is another military-based one, but opened its branches up to the average citizen. Now, these are the groups that are very specific. The Boogaloo Boys, which is a group of young gamers that moved from you know playing with airsoft guns in Call of Duty to carrying real AR-15s and showing up at protests, hoping to accelerate the fall of American democracy into a neo-Nazi paradise. So all of these disparate groups, Ku Klux Klan and, you know, neo-Confederates, all of them by summer of 2020, when the George Floyd protests came, had melded themselves into one block of, of armed resistance, along with the average Trump voter that was now coming out to these, you know, riots and protests with their own AR-15. And that was what I call the Titus, the Trump insurgency in the United States. Some of them may operate independently, but they are all bound by one thing, devotion, loyalty, and working as the armed foot soldiers of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Well, let me remind listeners that we're talking to Malcolm Nance, and I want to invite you to join the conversation if you have questions about the insurgency that he describes, or if you've encountered a domestic terrorist group in your town or through your work, you can tell us about that. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And if you have questions, uh, and if you have questions about what's happening in Ukraine as well, Malcolm Nance has just returned from there as part of the Foreign Fighters Legion. Uh, so you, you say that they came together, that they have united. I think you also, if you want to spend a little bit of time, talk about how there are also members of the military and law enforcement agencies that may be sympathetic to Titus. Uh, I think this is in your chapter called Treasonous Praetorians. Mm -hmm. But but I am curious about also just that additional part of it, the threat posed by military or government officials participating in the insurgency as well. Well, during the January 6th uh, insurrection, one in four of every person arrested was a member, former member of the armed forces. So armed forces or law enforcement. 
There are several major cases where they arrested armed officers in the building. A good example is there was a DEA officer, a Drug Enforcement Administration officer, uh, who was a counter anti-government protester who um, the DEA was well aware of, who showed up at the Capitol with his badge, his credentials, and his weapon, flashed it at officers, you know, almost as if, you know, I'm part of your club, I can come in. There were two um, deputy sheriffs in Southern Virginia who have since been convicted for uh, breaking into the building. They were carrying their firearms. I've personally taken part in um, uh, a group that identified people concealing weapons, uh, you know, long rifles and handguns. So, you know, the notion that no one came there armed that day, despite being armed with American flags, baseball bats, maces, mallets, axes, hundreds of other improvised weapons in order to maintain, quote unquote, you know, the law. There were members of the armed forces were the first ones in the door. A Marine uh, major was the first one in the door in the Capitol at one point and had opened the doors for the other rioters and since being, you know, court-martialed for his action. Yes, there are people in the armed forces that have done these things. Yes, they bring a base of knowledge. Um, you know, like there's a former Navy SEAL that ran a training school that had Patriot training in close quarters combat. Who needs close quarters combat? Are you intending to seize a building? <clears throat> you know, for so people offering services and activities like this and then participating in there give them an edge. However, it was the massed people power of the other three out of four that weren't in the military who just came there and had it been armed would have made it much more dynamic than it was. Hmm. You you wrote a book in 2018, I believe, The Plot to Destroy Democracy, where you actually described Mm. also Russia's use of cyber warfare and political propaganda to undermine the 2016 election. And you talked about how it corrupted the mindset of more than a third of Americans. Do you see Russia as having played a role in this rise of these right-wing extremist groups? Are they throwing fuel on a pre-existing domestic insurgency, or do you even see them as a prime mover in it? Well, not in the uh, twenty, not in what we saw in twenty twenty. Mm. Everything that took place between twenty fourteen, actually, it's not even twenty fourteen, twenty twelve. Uh, when the Russians started their operations against the United States in 2020, they did that by influencing the world's view of Donald Trump. And by doing that and and help creating the alt-right, uh, they didn't have to do anything else. It is now self-sustaining. We're talking with Malcolm Nance. His new book is They Want to Kill Americans, the Malicious, Terrorist, and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency. We'll have more about that and about Ukraine after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with counterterrorism expert Malcolm Nance about the war in Ukraine and about his new book, They Want to Kill Americans, about the growing number of armed right-wing extremist groups, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, QAnon, that are threatening our democracy. You, our listeners, have been waiting patiently. Kelly in Gilroy, join us. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Thank you, Mina. And thank you, Mr. Nance. I will buy your book, even though you're scaring the heck out of me. I will leave the country if the fascists take over. And I'm a liberal, and I uh, work in engineering, U.S. manufacturing. Um, 70% of the economy is liberals. Uh, The counties that Biden won comprise 70% of our nation's GDP. If Titus takes over and we have a fascist government, how do you imagine them dealing with that? I mean, they hate liberals. They want to put us in concentration camps. But we are the economy. It's, it's, it's a good question. I don't think that the people who have the loudest voices in the Titus are the people who really are the most violent, are the ones who are talking with the most violence. And I will call your attention to QAnon, right, which is a fictitious, imaginary character that was made up by some Internet guys who is supposedly a super deep insider spy who doesn't seem to know the first thing about spies or the intelligence community or tradecraft or the U.S. government, who claims that he had all this secret information. Hillary Clinton was to be arrested and, you know, the United States government was being led, you know, was being uh, run by pedophiles and who were child kidnapping and drinking the blood of children in order to stay young. I am not joking. That is what they believe. And another component of what they believe is that liberals were to be rounded up on a day called the storm and were to be taken to Guantanamo or summarily tried and executed in the streets. A lot of this is old, fantastical thinking from the American patriot movement in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that came to a head in the 1980s. And and quite a bit of this was in a book called The Turner Diaries. And for those of you who are people of a certain age, like me, You'll recall that that was the book that motivated Timothy McVeigh to blow up the Oklahoma City building, the Murrah building, and kill 168 of our fellow citizens, including 19 babies in a child care center. That book really motivated McVeigh because he thought that a civil race war would kick off the moment he blew up that truck bomb and that white policemen and white soldiers would take their government-issued weapons and start mass-murdering black people and Jews and liberals. A lot of people still believe that that's going to happen, and they all espoused to QAnon ideology. Many thought January 6th was the day of the storm, and that's why you had these crazy characters showing up, like the QAnon shaman, uh, you know, to stand in the well of the Senate and pretty much declare that, you know, a new world order for them is taking shape where Donald Trump is the hero of the story. Malcolm Nance, what do you make of political analysts, mm-hmm. polls suggesting waning support for former President Trump among Republican voters? The January 6th hearings, though maybe not being watched by 
a tremendous number of Republicans are creating some degree of, of pressure. I, I guess, <laughs> you know, wh- what do you what do you make of that? Do you feel like that's a sign that what you're describing is not inevitable, that there is a chance to move it in a different direction? You know, when when I would do analysis of, of our warlords, dictators, and potentates in the Middle East, I would constantly hear it, how Saddam Hussein's support is weakening, how Muammar Gaddafi will never be able to sustain himself. Look, this is not about, you know, uh, the political people who are supporting Donald Trump. This isn't about whether Mitch McConnell is going to support him tomorrow or not. This horse has left the barn. The, the base support Trump. Maybe they'll vote for somebody who is a stronger Trump, a bigger mouthed version of Trump, like uh, like DeSantis in Florida, right? Someone who's younger, a faster, smoother, slicker version of Trump. But what they want in Trumpism, which is what this ideology is, is the ability to be indecent, the ability to impose their will on 65% of the nation. And Many of them say it quite loudly. If they have to do it by force, they want to. Uh, My favorite quote of last year came from a gentleman who was at a Charlie Kirk um, uh, speech, and he said, when do we get to use our guns? And he said, no, really. When do we start killing people Hmm. for stealing our election? He was met with applause. If you think that there's going to be some kumbaya moment where they all say, hey, you know, we really should put our guns away back in the gun safe, you know, and start treating them carefully, you know, carefully and keeping them from our kids and and uh, put away our camouflage uniforms and start working the way that we we have for 245 years, which is with incrementalism. There will have to be a massive, massive either wave of opprobrium where the nation overwhelmingly rejects what they stand for, but it will have to take place amongst themselves. And right now, that doesn't exist. They are in love with the thoughts that they're having. And they view it as some form of, you know, manliness, American masculinity, this whole special operations, you know, worship, military worship has gotten so far out of control that, you know, a guy that couldn't run 100 meters is spending three, $4,000 on special operations issue tactical gear and Gucciing his gun, his AR-15 up for the coming race wars. Well, let me go to caller Nikki, who's been waiting. Hi, Nikki, go ahead. Hi, thank you so much, Malcolm. This is fascinating, and you really should have another forum show about Ukraine. I would love to hear that. But mm. I'm, my concern is probably what a lot of us um, non-Republicans are thinking with the rise of this Orwellian reinvention of truth and You know, if the horse is already out of the barn, as you say, with this um, kind of violent push for just overthrowing what the U.S. stands for. I mean, what are demos and, you know, others to do? Um, You know, we can't just have a kumbaya moment trying to understand the other side. Um, You know, there's get out the vote pushes, but uh, which I've participated in. But. It's like if they're going to just infiltrate the um, elections people, uh, how can we have another election that isn't overthrown mm-hmm. uh, the yeah. next time? Yeah. What should the demos do? You know, I'd like to, to, to square up the terminology that we're using here. It's not 
Republicans versus Democrats. This is Titus, right? The Trump insurgents in the United States. And if you want to call that Republican Party, you can now. Versus America. We are the people. We are overwhelmingly the people who represent the values and the incremental um, you know, movement forward and backwards throughout American history. This is a new wave of anti-American rejectionism. And I find it laughable that when I go on Twitter at the end of this radio program, people who say they're patriots who love America will threaten my life because I said something they didn't like. I'm from Philadelphia. I'm an originalist. I literally grew up around where the Declaration of Independence was, was written, where the founding fathers crafted this nation. And I take offense to these people calling themselves Americans when what they really want is they want a fascist Donald Trump version of, you know, King George III, or as I say, King Donald IV, uh, the first. And they want, and, and Trump himself, I spoke to Michael Cohen and Mary Trump, two people that know him personally. And they say he loves the concept of him as President King. So what do you do? You Americans, not not you Democrats, because I I was a Republican for a good piece of my life. Uh, you know, I was a Colin Powell style yes. Republican, left liberal, hard on national security, you know, soft on social liberal issues. And I'll tell you right now, we're so far left to the chart to the, on the chart, we practically fall off now. What can you do? Yeah, you have to stand for this country. And that means you cannot just say, oh, I did a little get out the vote and I got my friends. You're going to have to mobilize every week now until this election. You're going to have to tell people the stakes that this nation could end this November and bring out 10 people because your opponents are coming out. They're going to take one last stab at it with this election. And after that, if they, they think they're not getting what they want, they could quite literally go to guns. But if we control the levers of power fairly, legally and squarely, then, you know, those people are going to run into a wall of a lot more than shame if they decide to take on the United States government with force. We're talking with Malcolm Nance, and we've got questions as well about Ukraine. I'll read a couple of comments. Mm -hmm. Craig writes, what is the long-term outlook for Ukraine? They will always be within range of Russian guns and will always now be at risk of random and repeated attacks meant to terrorize and destabilize Ukraine. Will Ukraine ever be able to relax and return to a peacetime? Will they need to become a permanent militarized state? It seems that it will grind down and bleed the country for decades. Well, first off, I will go right on the table again and prognosticate Ukraine will win this war without any question. I'm there. I'm watching the line. I'm watching where people are fighting. I'm I'm looking at the, you know, the ebb and flow of combat from a person who had 36 years uh, experience in in uh, in war fighting and uh, intelligence. They're going to lose. The question is when that border is reestablished, you know, Russia is holding these little buffers out in the north you know, five, 10 kilometers in there. Ukraine has the ability to push them back to the geographic borders. What you have to do is also wear their ability to wage war down so deeply that they can't do anything about it. Russia could make steel, rolled steel and explosives and keep lobbing artillery shells there. But as NATO sells weapons to Ukraine, let me tell you, the Ukrainian army is going to transition here in the next two years to really capable weapon systems. 
if we move from the T-72 tank to the M1 Abrams, which you know, <laughs> you know the United States is just itching to sell them, that is going to become an unbeatable force. It, it, it would be like fighting the U.S. Army. And the Ukrainians have something else that we don't have, and the Russians definitely don't have. We have it at times. They have, they have the willingness to take do whatever it takes to beat the Russians. Those people cannot be beat. So will there be artillery duels? Yes, there will. But Russia will suffer far more with more advanced precision U.S. NATO and weapons systems in their hands than anything Russia could do. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm somewhere in the east. Um, they bombard a major city there routinely in what I call the frustration strategy, where they just can't do anything, so they just bombard the civilian sectors of the city and have been particularly adept at hitting shopping malls. That's frustration. Nance is a former naval intelligence officer specializing in cryptology and counterterrorism, also a member of the International Legion of Territorial Defense of Ukraine, just recently returned from the country, also a counterterrorism expert with a new book called They Want to Kill Americans on the Malicious Terrorists and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Richard in Marin. Hi, Richard. Hi. Hi, I, I have a pretty straightforward question, Malcolm. Um, I, I watched you that night on uh, on Bill Maher. I, I heard what you said, and I, I have felt this for a very long time. My straightforward question is, when it gets to the point, which I think it is, that they're not going to take elections, uh, uh, losing an election at all, is it not time for Americans and liberals to and I'm sorry to say this on KQED, arm up and begin to defend themselves? <laughs> you're, not, you're not the first one to say that. I was just asked that on WNYC on Brian Lehrer an hour ago. So, no, oh. <laughs> don't be going and getting guns, all right? There is no need for that. One, this is why we fund SWAT teams, okay? That, that little joking saying that I say all the time, I, was, I went through a SWAT officer's course. The people who really think that they're going to rise up and do something, seem to believe that law enforcement's on their side. But law enforcement is a fickle animal. The one thing that they do well is they make it clear that they are the arbiters of law, right? So if you come running into a neighborhood and you start shooting people, they will not ask you your political beliefs or confessions when they come back and start shooting back at you. Um, you know, the North Hollywood shootout when the robbers were going there. Cops aren't saying, well, are they on my side? Are they politically aligned with me? They like to resolve issues quickly. If it gets out of hand, we could have some sections of the country where sheriffs could side with a governor who decides that he's not going to listen to orders from the United States government. And we may even have National Guard units that have decided they will not follow orders of the the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States. We had an incident like that in Utah where the state uh, commander of the uh, National Guard said, my commander-in-chief is the governor. That's not true. When the United States federalizes you, you're part of the U.S. Army. There is a much bigger army of people that believe, defend, uh, and have sworn to defend the Constitution of the United States is bigger than anything anybody can muster. If they want to try the 1860 thing, you know, I think I highly recommend that they go watch Gettysburg to see just precisely how determined some people can be in fighting. But we don't want to go there. This is ludicrous. 
Uh, you have to watch out for the people who are going to go to San Dimas and shoot up uh, power plants and try to knock out your electricity. And they're going to be one of your neighbors. Caller, Martin, you're next. Go ahead. Yes, uh, Mr. Nance, who's paying for the militias? Mm. For the most part, these are all self-starters. But there has been, and that's what January 6th is looking into, is the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the 3% militia. Who is paying for them? That being said, most of those people bought themselves there. But there were people who bought... I'm not concerned about the militias. We know who they are. Law enforcement intelligence tracks these people. It's the rest of Titus. It's the 90% that are your neighbors that are hoarding AR-15s and buying ammunition at $1.25 a bullet. By the way, a year ago, AR-15 ammunition was $0.39 per bullet, I mean, before the 2020 election. It's $1.25 now because people are paying for it and buying so much ammunition that, you know, they, they're, they're hoarding it in preparation for civil war in some instances, I believe. So well, yeah. who's paying for it? Well, you are, because a lot of political parties out there and political supporters, Ginny Thomas bought 64 buses of people to that riot, right? Let's say four out of 10 did, didn't take part in it, but the other six did. We need to be holding everyone to account. This was an attempt on eliminating the American experiment. And I know, I personally, I take it very, very personally. And everyone should be held up to the law. Well, Ron writes, will this lead to civil war, which I've been worrying about for a few years? You know, Malcolm Nance, you've said this insurgency will lose steam or explode. (laughs) What do you have to say to Ron? And where are we at? What phase are we at? Where are we turning right now? Well, we're, we're not at civil war. We're at the, the beginnings of an insurgency. And, and the key component of that is the, um, the key component of that is that the insurgents themselves are waiting to follow orders. They're waiting for a precipitating event. They're waiting for their tribal leader, Donald Trump, to, to uh, do something. Donald Trump is going to run for president. They're already saying right now uh, in the latest reporting, it may be the only way for him to once again attempt to stay out of jail on many different levels. But his followers, they don't care one way or the other. Trumpism is here. It's here to stay. And they're willing to fight for it if at, at the right time. I know you say you don't predict, but if you had to say lose steam or explode, which one do you think is more likely? Oh, explode. Oh, it's God. it's way beyond it's way beyond what I wrote a year ago. Malcolm Nance Sorry. is sobering. Um, it's hard to hear. I, I I have to admit it's something I neither want to believe or confront. Uh, but I appreciate you sharing your insights into this and your thoughts. Malcolm Nance's book is "They Want to Kill Americans." Thank you, listeners, for your questions. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence. 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.